This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. this is the red box podcast i'm matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my times radio show monday to friday 10 till 1 don't forget you can listen live on your dab radio on your smart speaker or download the times radio app coming up on today's episode we've got the latest exit interview with dozens of mps announcing they're standing down at the next election i invite some of them into my office to ask them why they're leaving the highs and the lows and their advice to their successor in my office this week it's sir gary Streeter, Conservative MP for South West Devon since 1992. He discusses everything from why John Major shouldn't have been Prime Minister, which is a bit awkward because he actually worked for him after he lost in 1987, being sacked by Ian Duncan Smith and his one-word verdicts on every Tory Prime Minister since. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as we always do, let's take a look at the day's news with The Columnist. The Columnists on Times Radio. And uh, it should be Libby Rachel today, but no Libby Purvis. Uh, so uh, we have got Rachel Sylvester. Morning, Rachel. Morning, Matt. And we have got Ian Martin. Morning, Ian. Good morning. Now, just to warn you both, today is a job free zone. So if, if you mention him at any point, you will hear this noise. Ah, uh, forgive me. Because I'm sick of sick of sick of talking about him, and uh, no no good is going to come. I really it. approve of this rule. It's a very good idea. Excellent, very good. Uh, so instead, let's talk about the other guy, Keir Starmer. Whoop whoop! The whole nation rejoices. Is uh, is <laughs> launching another one of his missions this morning, Ian? What number mission is this? I don't, I've lost count. I've lost count. <laughs> but I think it is. You're not updating your wall chart at home. <laughs> <laughs> is there a Keir Starmer wall chart available? Um, but I do think this one is rather uh, important and significant, what he's doing. Of course, he's announcing the latest version, keeps changing, of his green revolution. His yes, green, this is number four, for number four mission. Yeah, so, I mean, it, I think it is significant. He seems, he has, he's shifting a bit on oil and gas, which I think is encouraging, not enough in... Um, in my book, and he's also announcing this uh, this business of uh, which is going to make it easier to plaster the entire country with um, with wind farms and other renewables. There's a serious point though, which is that I, th- and I think people are just going to have to get used to this. Is that if he becomes prime minister and he is serious about this renewable stuff, it is going to be built in a lot of seats which are, <laughs> I think, primarily conservative. So people can. Um, 
complain about it, or, or maybe even uh, potentially liberal liberal seats. But I, I think the next Labour government will, if it happens, will be absolutely determined on this infrastructure point. It'll be yeah. the, the white heat of technology again. That approach, you know, in the 1960s, that'll be the rhetoric with a huge amount of building. Whether or not it is entirely sensible is another question. I, I think we're going to need oil and gas for a very long time. I think the net zero date, dates as they stand are completely insane. But I suppose we're never going to get to the point where we don't need oil and gas without uh, an enthusiastic push for alternatives yeah possibly but still so many questions unanswered on how you know storage works batteries technology which hasn't been invented so we're expected to believe that the british political class is going to organize all of this in the next seven years or so it is simply not credible you take um you take all all sorts of experts who are committed to cleaner energy Take someone like Helen Thompson, whose book Disorder was brilliant on all of this, uh, the academic from Cambridge. It's a 40, 50, 60 year transition period. And politicians should just start being honest about this. It it cannot be delivered because XR wants it um, delivered and wants to shut down the economy in the next 10 years. We just have to be pragmatic and realistic about it. So Keir Starmer has been speaking this morning, setting out his fourth mission, which is to make Britain a clean energy superpower. Removing fossil fuels from all of Britain's electricity generation by 2030. Let's take a listen to what he's been saying. A cause that will create good jobs, well-paid jobs, half a million new jobs, 50,000 here in Scotland, will power us forwards towards net zero, generate growth right across the country. A stronger, more secure Britain, once again at the service of working people with cheaper bills and clean electricity by 2030. It's an interesting point um, Ian was making, Rachel. The, 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 I mean, it's not very long to go now until we get to 2030. But I suppose there's a risk if, they, if he then said, OK, fine, it's going to be 2050. We won't do anything until 2043. Yes, I think also the framing of all of this uh, in that clip from Starmer is really fascinating because there's this tension around the shadow cabinet table about the people who want to prioritise the cost of living, jobs, uh, you know, people really struggling with the day-to-day and the sort of more um, long-term green agenda, you know, tackling climate change. Um, the figurehead of that is Ed Miliband. Uh, and Starmer is very much trying to pitch any of this environmental stuff in terms of jobs, cost of living, more um, kitchen table uh, spin, if you like. Um, and I think the, backing away from the $28 billion, uh, that Ed Miliband had promised for investment in green energy is part of that too, that they, they've got to show economic competence and that they care about cost of living more than they need to demonstrate a commitment to climate change. Um but so, so I think there's an interesting sort of political strategy point here as well. But actually, if you look at the uh, if you look at the polling uh, on uh, voting intention, that yes, uh, um, uh, Labour are ahead in the polls and they are picking up votes from the Conservatives, but they are also losing votes to the Greens. Now you'd assume that they would come back in uh, in a general election. I was just looking it up. So with the 2019. Uh, Labour vote. One in ten people have voted Labour in 2019 are currently saying they'd vote Green. So there is a risk here that if he's he's watching down his Green credentials, which upsets the Greens, while yeah. also upsetting uh, on the other side 
the talk, you know, it's, it's a risky strategy. There's a risky base. It doesn't get the, enough credit for being uber, uber green. Yeah. But upsets the people who don't like the wind farms and thinks we still need oil and gas. Well, it's a, it's a good point, actually, isn't it? And if it becomes established that there's definitely going to be uh, a Labour government and that he's so far ahead in the polls, then some people, and this is a risk to Labour, some people in those seats that you describe and uh, uh, voters who lean, uh, you know, eco or lean, lean green might think, well, he's going to win anyway, so I have a chance to, to protest. And that's not what Labour needs yeah. at all, because no matter how far ahead they are in the polls, the basic reality is they still have this mountain to climb because they start from so far behind because of Corbyn's failure in 2019. And it's very, it's very, very difficult to get to a majority of even, of even one. I mean, it looks like they'll get to a healthy majority at the moment. So he'll, um, he has, it's a, it's a difficult balance to strike actually, though he is also, he's gaining in confidence clearly, isn't he? With that, with that bigger poll lead, yeah. he can afford to say to Ed Miliband, um, you know, remember who helped bring him into politics as an MP, he can say to Ed, Ed Miliband, this is how it's going to be and be in a very strong position around the shadow cabinet table. And I suppose the the other uh, thing is that sometimes voters will reward you even if they don't agree with every sort of coffin spit of the thing that you're, you know, being a man with a plan, uh, even if you're not fully on board with all of it. You know, you, rather yeah. than being, you know, the, the biggest thing put risk for him is sort of being Mr. Flip Flopper and what he stands for uh, and all of that. Whereas actually being decisive, you know, as Margaret Thatcher certainly benefited from this, being decisive and having a plan. Yeah can That's actually, fair. you know, embolden support for you. There's also the contrast with the other lot and the guy we don't uh, mention who um, is in the news but we're not talking <laughs> about. Just if, if you, the contrast between Starmer making speeches which are, you know, imbued with the spirit of the white heat of technology, the sort of Wilsonian you know, technological revolution and sounding yeah. dynamic and determined whether he's right or wrong, and I, I think the plan is, you know, is, is in its current terms a bit nuts. Um, it does, it sounds purposeful uh, and, and neatly uh, makes this contrast yeah. with the other lot and the guy we can't mention. <laughs> and actually, the, you know, the, the, the background of energy prices going up as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it passes the sort of pub logic test. Well, we need to, yeah. we need to generate more of our own in a way that some of it yeah, may not in the past. It does, but the... But the, yeah. the the tech questions are still yeah, yeah. serious, you know. And also, we were very lucky last winter. It was a mild winter. Yeah. I mean, it's it, the energy crisis or the you know everything that flows from the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine is going to play out over three to five yeah, yeah. years rather than just a single year. So we'll see. It might look different in February, March next year. Well, um, Keir Stam is making this speech uh, during his weekly visit to Scotland. Uh, he'll have citizenship soon if he's, he spends so much time there. Um, he's speaking in Edinburgh uh, this morning. There's a reason for that, of course. He hopes to try and capitalise on uh, the SNP's woes. Here was Nicola Sturgeon uh, speaking to reporters outside our house yesterday. You know, I can't say very much just now. Uh, what I will say is uh, reiterate the statement I issued last Sunday. I am certain that I have done nothing wrong. Um, I intend to be back in Parliament in the early part of the week. Uh, I'll make myself available uh, for questions then, uh, obviously within the constraints that I am referring to right now. Uh, for now, I intend to go home, uh, catch up with some family. I know I'm a public figure, I accept what comes with that, but I'm also a human being that's entitled to a bit of privacy and my neighbours are also entitled to a bit of peace and quiet as well. 
Uh, that was Nicola Sturgeon speaking yesterday. It came as a panel-based poll for the Sunday Times in Scotland. Suggested Labour could defeat the SNP at the next election for the first time since since 2010. Um, and it does feel, Rachel, like Keir Stum is at least sort of capitalising on this political turmoil for uh, the SNP. He's making lots of visits there, making lots of announcements and noise uh, that actually previous Labour leaders just haven't felt capable of doing. Yeah, exactly. And I think the chances of Labour having an overall majority really depend on what happens in Scotland. Uh, so, you know, it could be the difference between a hung parliament and Keir Starmer ending up as a majority prime minister. So the more seats they can get in Scotland, the higher their chance of um, a sort of strong government. Uh, and also you, you get away from this idea that we've had at so many elections about Labour being in the pocket of the SNP, you know, that famous Ed Miliband in the pocket of Alex Salmond. Um, as soon as the SNP are weakened, that removes that line of attack that the Conservatives love to do on Labour. Um, but still there is that, the sort of underlying question is still the same, and it goes back to the previous discussion that, you know, um, there's a sense of people want change, whether that's the Tories in Westminster or the SNP in Scotland. But I don't think Keir Starmer has yet completely convinced the voters that they want to change to Labour or either north or south of the border. And that's what he's got to do. He's got to have something sufficiently compelling that there's a positive message as well as a sort of negative anti-vote. And it is amazing that for so long the SNP seemed impenetrable. And it turns out the only oh, people yeah. who could penetrate the SNP were themselves. Yeah. I mean, if, yeah, if, you, if we'd been having this discussion even six months ago and that clip had just played, you'd say, what the hell happened in the <laughs> intervening six months? But I, I, yeah, I was very struck there by um, Nicola Sturgeon's um, you know, plea for privacy. I mean, that's always the best way, you know, to hold a press conference outside your house, yeah. you know, having gone on loose women and given, uh, you know, made various appearances. But it, it's but also it, she it, can't it's even incredible say, what's she, happened. She, to she, she also can't say, you know, I appeal for privacy on behalf of my family, given that her husband is as involved in it as she is. There, there is all of that. But it does. I, I have been saying for. A while um, for three, four months, that Labour is on track as it stands to 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 outperform in Scotland, and that something is really happening there, which is very positive for the union, uh, and as Rachel said, is a big, big breakthrough for um, for the Labour Party. And I hadn't quite thought about it in those terms until Rachel said it. But the, if you can make it difficult or borderline implausible for the Tories to put up that poster saying that there's a hung parliament coming and that the SNP are going to be in charge, then you remove um, that uh, campaigning technique which the Tories exploited so brilliantly in 2015 and again um, subsequently in 2019, and that is a major advantage for, for Labour in, in England. If it just sounds implausible, if you say to the voters, well, the SNP are going to be in charge, and voters in England say, well, they're clearly not the SNP yeah, are yeah, going yeah. down the pan. It's interesting, Humza Yousaf's response to all of this, making this speech today, uh, setting out plans for an independent Scotland to have a written constitution. He's just said that, uh, um, that the, uh, in Westminster, uh, could even allow the sovereignty could even allow the UK Parliament to repeal devolution. This is all sounding a bit crackers, isn't it? Suggesting that Westminster could have just abolished the Scottish Parliament. That's just not going to happen. Um, yeah, I do think there's a real opening there for Labour 
to start defending not just the union, but start defending devolution. I was a critic of devolution, but it's clearly not going to be abolished by Westminster. There's no um, no way in which that's going to happen. So Labour can try and pivot the ar- argument back to, well, try and make devolution work. Try and get the governments to actually, the two governments mm. to actually cooperate in practical terms, learn lessons from each other. It should be a constructive enterprise in the way that was envisaged by people like Donald Dewar and Gordon Brown hasn't really turned out that way, but there is an opening there for Labour to, to, to actually find a bit of confidence and be the champion of devolution again. Let's turn our attention now to the big question of the day. Is there a way of discussing swearing on the radio without getting us taken off air? Don't worry, this is actually a conversation about maths rather than swearing, we hope. Uh, a mathematician has come up with a new swear word... Uh, Sophie McLean is from the Protect Pure Math campaign. She's studying for an MSc in Maths at King's College London. Sophie, let's keep it clean. Uh, Good morning. Good morning. Now, explain first of all why you decided to set out to create the world's best swear word. Um, To be honest, it all came from just trying to do something fun. I think often maths gets a bit of reputation for being all about rules and um, sticking to very rigid guidelines. And I want to do something a bit fun with it. So I thought, can I combine the swear words we already have to make a better one? And what? how did you draw up the list of swear words, again, without using them on the radio? Yeah, um, thankfully, Ofcom did it for me. Oh, yes. Um, I'm very familiar so... with their list of swear words. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you are. Um, And I filtered out all the ones that I personally would never want to say. Um, So kept out all the ones about protected characteristics and things and just stuck with the pure, um, the kind of more everyday swear words. And thankfully, it ranks them moderate, mild and strong. So I could use their ranking as well to weight which swear words were worse and better. Okay, and so what was you, you sort of feed them all into the modern? What it, it takes the recurring elements of them that crop up the most that make them the most effective swear word. Yeah, pretty much. So I really looked at two main things for this. Firstly, if you're at one particular letter, what's the next most common letter? So without naming any swear words, I think we can all agree there are a lot that end er. So that was quite a common pairing that yeah. came up. Um, and the other thing was four-letter words. Obviously, I built in a bit that made it more likely <laughs> that words ended after four letters. Um, but right, so before, they were kind of, before you yeah. before you actually tell us what you came up with, are you a big swearer, Ian? Less than I used to be, actually. I was just going to pose the question, has swearing actually gone out of fashion a bit? I, I think it probably has in the last 30, 40 years. Maybe I just hear it less, but it was just more in the culture yeah. in the 70s and 70s and 80s. Well, I'll tell you who does swear a lot. Rachel Sylvester. <laughs> I hate swearing, but I don't think Ian's right. If you've got teenage children, I don't know. I'm constantly having a battle about swearing. But um, maybe the swear word is B-O-R-I-S. Beep, beep, beep. Whoa, 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 whoa. You swear, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, forgive me. <laughs> well, B is the most common letter for a swear word to yes. start with. Yeah, so. it, it dangerously close to being a swear word. So, uh... <laughs> but, so I would I would defend swearing, though. I, I, I know what you mean, Rachel, but I, I think the point is that I think it's brilliant when done sparingly, yeah, 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 yeah. sparingly and in, in genuine anger or in humour. But I mean, it's the repetitive nature of it, of um, using the words we're not going to mention just over and over again in general uh, conversation. So go on then, Sophie. Uh, tell us, what is the ultimate swear word? So according to um, what I looked into, the ultimate swear word is banger. Okay. Which- 
thankfully can be said on the radio because it currently isn't a swear word, but maybe maybe it will catch on. And uh, is it? Yeah, is it? Is it? He's a banger, or is it? Uh, do you use it as a as a noun or a verb? Well, so the thing about this is I didn't separate nouns and verbs, so this could be used in any context. And often actually swear words play multiple roles in being both nouns yeah. and verbs. So I think this can be used however you, you fancy, but it does sound like a good insult. Banger, banger, you're a banger, he's a banger, yeah. banger yeah. off. Yes, I love that. Stick it up your banger. <laughs> Ian Martin and Rachel Sylvester there, and of course you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is the exit interview. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. We've already said... Sir Gary Streeter is leaving us soon. Goodbye. Born in 1955, he grew up in Devon, training as a solicitor before finding politics through religion. I'm only involved in politics because I do have a sense of calling. In 1992, he was elected as a Conservative MP, serving as a junior minister, and was one of just 165 Tory MPs to survive the 1997 New Labour landslide. I liked John Major very much, but I don't think he should ever have been Prime Minister. He went on to join the shadow cabinet of William Hague, but was sent to the back benches by Ian Duncan Smith. I handled it like a man of God. And I sulked for about two years. He gives his verdict on all his political bosses, including David Cameron. Classy. Boris Johnson. Capable of greatness, but deeply flawed. And Liz Truss. Disastrous. So, Sir Gareth Nicholas Streeter, welcome to your exit interview. A chance for us both to learn what you could have done better. 
first question then why are you leaving well i am of a certain age so i'll be 69 at the next election i was elected first in 1992 so it'll be 32 years at westminster i think that's a good shift and uh, i'm ready to make way for a younger person uh, there'll be lots of ways that people get into this job how did you get into politics yeah it's an unusual story in the sense that um, i wasn't interested in politics at all at university uh, or as a younger man um, but I, I think you probably know i'm a committed christian and in, at the age of 30 i just had this sense of a calling uh, to public service and the way that the, i sort of pursued that it, it developed into um, an opportunity to take part in politics and so i I actually did get involved and did join the SDP again because I, I didn't know anything about politics. I knew Mrs Thatcher was the Prime Minister, David Owen was a good local member of Parliament. I joined his party and that's how it started. So it was a calling from God? Yeah. Yeah. And how did that, because you, when you were younger you weren't even that religious. You sort of went through, as you got a bit older, was it you got into religion well, through your wife? Yeah, I, as a young man I was brought up in a non-Christian household. Yeah. But at the age of 23, 24, when I married Jan, she was a Christian, I was not. And during that process of the first six 12 months of of married life i started to explore christianity for myself uh, and came to the conclusion that the, the uh, evidence for the, the life and death and resurrection of jesus christ is overwhelming so i made my decision so it wasn't a gradual thing I, you, there comes a day when you have to look at the evidence and make up your mind no but it's, but it's an interesting question we'll talk about your your career in a moment in terms of being a christian in politics yeah has it affected your work and how, because we've seen it even quite recently with the, the Kate, Kate Forbes in, in Scotland, her faith suddenly became yeah. a very big part of it. Have you felt it's been able to inform or shape your politics? Have you had to play it down in your, in your politics? No, I think the key, key thing about modern day politics is authenticity. And it's just telling people, well, this is who I am. If you like it, vote for it. If you don't, you know, don't vote for it. Vote for somebody else. So I'm only involved in politics because I do have a sense of calling. If I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't be involved in politics. I can assure you, I stayed as a lawyer, yeah. made an awful lot more money and probably had a much quieter life. Has there ever been a moment where your faith and your politics or your commitment to your, your, your commitment as a Conservative MP have been in tension, that you've had to sort of pick party loyalty, you know, toe in the party line and your faith? Yeah, I would say there have been several times along the journey when that has been the reality. It's just reality for most people, whether they have yeah. a faith or not. You know, it's constituency versus party, it's conscience versus party and so on. Of course, there are a lot of things which are free votes. Yeah. And so that's a sort of get out of jail card. Um, but we made, we made the decision, my wife and I, in the early days, I would pick my conscience first, my constituency second, and party third. And the upshot of that, after 32 years, believe it or not, is that I have only voted against my own party nine times in 32 years. And as I was sharing this in the tea room one day, David Davis said, yeah, that, that just shows what a supine character you must be. <laughs> he, of course, does that a week. Does it, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who would you think there was nothing to it? Apart from, of course, when he was a whip, when he would have, ah, really yes. have frowned on that, story then. on that sort of thing. All right, let's go. You've had several bosses, quite in about 30 odd years in politics. You've had several bosses. Well, we go through them. I'll give you the name of one of your, your bosses in politics and you, you just sum them up in a word or two. Uh, so let's start with David Owen. Uh, good, worthy... Good man. And you, so you started out in the SDP. You decided you wanted to get into politics. Uh, he was obviously local MP there as well. Yeah. What was it that made you turn your back on the SDP in the, in the 80s? Well, because I came to politics in this very unusual way with no sort of hinterland and no thinking about it at university. I bet, I bet you were reading Hansard at the age of 14, weren't you, <laughs> under your blankets? I bet you were. But I, I started thinking about politics almost the day I joined the SDP. 
when I started thinking about what do I really think about enterprise and business and Europe and grammar schools and all the rest of it, it I am just a natural Tory. And so after sort of 12 months or so of grappling with all this, uh, I made that decision, crossed the floor of the chamber. That was a difficult time. In Plymouth City Council. Yeah, and because, you know, you let down all these people who've been campaigning for you against the Conservative Party, of course. Uh, and that was a, a tough old gig. But it, it had to be done. I was, I was simply on the wrong vehicle and I had to change course. So good and worthy for David Owen. So then you, you, you jump to the Conservatives, you become uh, an MP in 1992. How do you sum up John Major? I liked John Major very much, but I don't think he should ever have been Prime Minister or the leader of our party. There are three people, probably if I include Tony Blair, four people I've encountered in my 32 years at Westminster who I think are absolutely outstanding. Uh, They should have been leader and should have been Prime Minister. Um, It's a very difficult job, and I'm not quite sure that John, bless his heart, you know, he should certainly have been in the high-ranking cabinet positions, but he didn't quite have that personal security, I didn't feel, or vision, to take the party forward. So what should we put down for him? What word sums up John Major? Um, uh, Agreeable. (laughs) That's very good. And you were his PPS. Explain to people who who don't know what that means and what the job involved. It was obviously quite a difficult time for him. Well, I was uh, a minister in his government and in the Whip's office. Then when we lost in 97, as you rightly said, it was a bit of a landslide. I was asked by the then Chief Whip to become John Major's PPS a parliamentary private secretary, bag carrier, uh, personal assistant, really, to look after him. And he, and he did need looking after because, you know, he was badly beaten up by his own backbenchers, uh, well, cabinet ministers, yeah. actually. And one of the funny things was, I would t- so I'd sit in his office. Uh, first of all, I had to find him a great office in the Westminster, and he had a wonderful office overlooking the Thames and so on. And then all these people who'd spent 12 months, two years, stabbing him in the back would come in and say, oh, John, I do feel, and they'd lost their seats. Yeah. I can serve the party in a wider capacity, which was code for saying, please put me in the House of Lords. <laughs> and he'd be pleasant and so on. And they would walk out and I'd show them out the door and I'd come back to his desk and he'd say the same thing every time, over my dead body. <laughs> <laughs> so th- was this the period when he was, uh, when the party was choosing a new leader? Yes, it was about three, four months. Yeah. Yeah. Was it an impossible job by that point? You know, to have won in 92 against lots of people's expectations, and given everything that unfolded, Party got hammered then in 1997. But do you think it's just that actually parties, after about a decade in power, that's probably what happens regardless of who's leader? I can see where you might be taking me with this question. (laughs) I think there is a shelf life, and there should be in a mature democracy, you've got to have a change of party from time to time. Um, You know, 18 years was too long. Um, Yeah, so it may may be... 13, 14 years, is that too long? See... The current situation is that we've had so many different prime ministers yeah. that actually we can go to the country and say, well, no, we've already changed. Yeah. And actually, I, I think most people, by the time we get to the election, will realise that Rishi Sunak is very special and you know, might well deserve a longer run at it. We'll come to him in a moment. Let's, carry, sure on, let's carry on working them through. Uh, so William Hague then obviously becomes yeah. leader in opposition. Uh, you became his shadow international development secretary. Yeah. William Hague in a word. Brilliant. Oh, very good. He's one of my three people on our, on our side who I think is absolutely outstanding. His intellect, his uh, ability to communicate, his vision, his strength, quite fantastic. But an impossible job in the late 90s, early noughties. Yeah, because Tony Blair was reigned supreme. Yeah. Uh, and he, he sort of, it was no one would, the Archangel Gabriel wouldn't have beaten Tony Blair. How about me saying that? Yeah. Your Labour opponent, the uh, Labour's International Development Secretary, Claire Short, said you were a strange man. What did you think of her? Um, I, I liked Claire very much. She was very genuine. 
Yeah, uh, she, we came from a different sort of ideological viewpoint. Yeah. She got very angry at the Smashbox when any challenge, and the job, as you know, the shadow is to ask questions and probe and why do we do this? And just the most gentle of questioning, and she suddenly become this raging tornado at the dispatch box. It was quite, quite good fun to provoke her, actually. But I, I always knew that her heart was in the right place, and she did her absolute best for the most vulnerable people in the world. OK, so uh, William Hague was brilliant. Then, after the 2001 election, he's replaced by Ian Duncan Smith, yeah. who, who dispatches you to the back benches. Yes, and the reason why he did that was because when Ian rang round uh, the shadow cabinet at the time to say, will you support me, and I was supporting Michael Portillo, I made the, probably the rookie error, Matt, of saying to him, no, Ian, I won't support you because I believe you're unelectable. <laughs> Is that your words to sum up? Those were exactly my words <laughs> to him. And as a result of that... For some that? reason, he didn't give you a job. Quite. And that's fine. That's yeah. fine, because it was an absolute disaster of two years. Here's a little story for you. Um, I'm one of the few uh, Conservative MPs who've been to North Korea. And it was in North Korea in 2003. I was in Pyongyang when the leadership election took place for Ian Duncan Smith, and I was rung by one of Ian's acolytes saying, please, 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 will you, will you at least abstain and not vote against him in the leadership con contest? I said, absolutely not. I'm voting against him. I've given my proxy to a colleague, a friend, and I've instructed him to vote against him. And so I'm probably the only person in 50 years to vote in Pyongyang. <laughs> so you did. You, you, ousted, you, you ousted a leader from North Korea. Very good. Uh, to be replaced by Michael Howard, in a word. Terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> when he was Shadow Foreign Secretary, I was Shadow Minister for Europe. Never really understood any of the treaties we were negotiating. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, impossible to, to fathom, even as a lawyer. Anyway, um, a very tough cookie to work for, but a brilliant mind. So when was it um, Anne Whittacombe said there was something of the night about him? Was she, she on to something? No, I think that suggests sinisterness, and, and I, don't, I don't see that. He's just, he, he absolutely speaks his mind. If he thinks you've done a bad job, he will tell you. I quite like that. Um, at least you know where you are. But, you know, you, you know that when you walk you into like the room... like shouting and throwing things? Not really shouting and throwing things. It's, it's much more um, sort of... Uh, what's the word? It, you know, it was forensic. It, yeah. it wasn't shouting. It wasn't Gordon Brown and hair dryers or whatever it was. Yeah. It, it, he was forensic. Yeah. And he just pull you apart and think, oh, God, yeah, you're right, I... I've cocked that up completely. Uh, let's move on. David Cameron uh, obviously then became leader in 2005, beating David Davis. Yeah. David Cameron, in a word. Well, I'm going to have to use three. Go on. A, a class act. I suppose I could say classy. <laughs> classy, we'll do that. Yeah, yeah. It, um, what what is it that he had? He had everything. Yeah. He had the brain, had the confidence, had the vision, and had the ability to communicate. I suppose you could say he's a bit posh. I don't actually think the British people care about that if you're good enough. I just think he had everything. And he should have been a great Prime Minister for a very long time until he made that interesting decision to resign after the Brexit result. Was the mistake resigning at that point or was the mistake promising the referendum in the first place, not knowing what he was doing? I don't think we had any choice. I think the pressure from within the party and from to the right of the party was such that I don't think we could have governed if we hadn't given that. I think what he should have said was during the referendum debate, look, George Osborne's leading the debate for the, you know, for the pros staying in. Remain, Remain. that's the word. Yeah. Thank you. It seems a long time ago now. Oh, it was. Um, I'm going to stand behind it all. I'm not going to express an opinion. Whatever you choose, I will implement. Yeah. If I wish he'd said that because I think history would have been very different. Uh, instead, he did resign in 2016 to be replaced by Theresa May. Theresa May in a word. Um, I think she is 
very laudable. I think she, she's, I, I don't want to use the word worthy twice, and that's a bit cheap for her, because I think she's very good indeed. That's not one word. Um, but it, she had impossible circumstances. I think she is, all right, here we go. High quality. High quality. That's two words. Well, hyphenate them. Well, hyphenate You've it. got your dictionary got it there. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, during, during all those Brexit shenanigans, you, you, you took a pop at one point at this swivelized purists amongst your colleagues. Who Was said it? that? You did. Well, I was misquoted. You? By you, probably. No. Um, yes, I did say that. <laughs> because I have, you know, recognised... Well, the, the day I walked into the House of Commons chamber for the first time, we were starting to discuss the Maastricht Treaty. And the reality was that those people who felt so passionately about the European issue, more important than anything else in, not just in politics, but in the world, uh, you think, I'm sorry, that can't be right. You're just over-focused, you know, swivel-eyed, just obsessed... And I'm afraid that uh, these are the people who have taken us to the point of where we are today. And, yeah, I, th I think that uh, they haven't done us a great service. Uh, well, let's move on. So, obviously, Theresa May, so she eventually went in 2019, having not been able to get anything through the House of Commons on, on Brexit, to be replaced by Boris Johnson. Yes, I've heard of him. Boris Johnson in a broadcastable word. I'm going to have to use a couple of words That's again, I'm, I'm afraid. I'll fill it in on my clipboard. Uh, well, it's a phrase I've used several times. Yeah. Capable of greatness but deeply flawed. Let's, let's, let's be positive to start with. What's he done that's been great? First of all, he engineered an election. He won an election with an 80-seat majority. It's pretty good, isn't yeah. it? And then he delivered uh, a Brexit, which so that's all good because that's what the British people had asked him to do. So that's impressive. Um, well, that's the positive bit. Yeah. His flaws? Well, obviously, his uh, lack of attention to detail... And I would say a recklessness as to the truth. That's sort of using a bit of legal speak. I think that's where he is. It's, it's, I may be telling the truth, I may not be. I just don't really care. You, um, in your, as we're preparing for the exit interview, I look back, you submitted an HR complaint against Boris Johnson, right to the 1922 committee, saying you cannot reconcile the pain and the sacrifice of the vast majority of the British public during lockdown with the attitude and activity of those working in Downing Street. What did you think when you first heard about what had been going on in Number 10 while the rest of the country was in lockdown? I think, if I'm honest with you, given what we were going through at the time, sick to my stomach. Because that three to four months of the first part of lockdown, I mean, I don't think any of us MPs have ever been busier, and it was just, you were constantly fielding questions from constituents. Can I do this? Can I do that? You know, can I go to Bristol to pick up my daughter at university? I've got it, you know, da, da, da. And we were just making all these decisions and people were taking it so seriously and it was, it was like nothing with anyone had ever experienced. And then when the, some of the stories started to emerge, well, hang on, in Downing Street has been a bit more relaxed and these are the rule makers. I just felt that it was absolutely unacceptable. Do you think he will come back? Absolutely not. I think you know, he's completely so. spent force now. It's an absolute nonsense. I mean, he's never, he was never going to come back. Um, and there's, there's no appetite for him to come back. I, I should think the vast majority of the parliamentary party, you know, are glad he's gone. And we just want to move on. We, we, we think Rishi is very special. Let's give him 12 months of sort of noises off being silenced and let him show the people what he can do. OK, we'll come on to him in a minute. Let's, let's uh, deal with the, the, the short interlude that's known as Liz Truss. Uh, Liz Truss in a word? Disastrous. <laughs> I mean, that is, that, that is a word. Were you surprised? I mean, she, you were there when she arrived in the House of Commons. She was a, tipped as a star, junior minister and so on. Were you surprised that she got the job and then that she was so disastrous? 
in your word? Um, I, I, I didn't think she was a star. I think, I think she was a very lovely person and very capable person and certainly should have been in someone's cabinet. I, I couldn't... I was, I was surprised when she ran for leader and I couldn't really believe it when the party selected her. But on the other hand, Rishi didn't campaign terribly well at the start of the leadership campaign, the first leadership campaign. And I think he got off to a bit of a poor start, but um, it just wasn't a good moment. Uh, well, let's turn then to Rishi Sunak, who you thought was the right person. Rishi Sunak, in a word. I'm going to use another phrase. I'm Go sorry. On. That's okay. The I'll let you The smartest off. man in the room. What do you mean by that? I think in any situation, very intelligent, yeah. great life experience, um, both in terms of, you know, his, his, his upbringing, uh, but also his commercial and business experience, great interpersonal skills, uh, brilliant ability to do detail and big picture, that's unusual, and um, to focus on the key issues. So he's just, the guy is just smart. How much of a problem will it be that while he's trying to fight Keir Starmer, he's also trying to fight Boris Johnson and Nadine yeah. Doris and... What I say to people is that I think Left to his own devices, Rishi Sunak can win us the next election. Unfortunately, he's not being left to his own devices. We have got some parliamentary colleagues and others who are just messing it up for us. If they continue like that, then, you know, it might not be such a great outcome. If they can be persuaded to just go quietly into that still night, then, um, yeah, all bets are off. We could easily come home and, in, ahead. So your message to Boris Johnson and the Dean? I, you know, you've had a good run. Uh, we appreciate your, your talents. But please now go and do something else. Right, I want to do some, uh, some exit interview, sort of quick-fire questions. Do you think we equipped you properly to handle your job? Did, did you equip me to do it? Absolutely not. And there's no training whatsoever. Did I have the right skills to do it? I think my legal background helps. And the fact that I was a counsellor for five or six years, that, that helps too. Because politics is unlike anything else and takes a lot of learning. And I think local government experience is quite, quite handy. But even today, I would say that uh, you know, incoming members of parliament or potential members of parliament are not receiving any kind of on-the-job training. And maybe that needs to change. But the, the way that I think we've always looked at this is when you are elected to parliament, you're almost like a, a small business. You know, you're, you're a standalone person. You make your own decisions. You employ your own staff and, and so on. And it, it would be quite, I think it would be counterproductive if, if you like, the state took over and talked and, and led and, you know, put you in a straitjacket. So maybe it's never going to change. Your best moment or proudest moments in the job? I mean, the thing I enjoy most is helping people in the constituency, as you might expect me to say that. But actually, ironically, for a committed Christian, the, the most important thing I've ever done for the constituency and the thing I am very proud of is that when I was first elected, the Trident refit work, yeah. uh, refitting the Trident submarine, was destined for Rosyth. And I can remember many tussles with Gordon Brown before he was terribly famous um, over that. And, and that, was his, that was his part of the Ross exactly. was his, and, and they'd actually dug the hole in the ground where this thing was going to be maintained. And in came Devonport uh, with uh, a, a better offer. And I lobbied every member of the cabinet, made speeches with just relentless campaigning. And in the end, the government said, OK, it can go to Devonport, the Trident thing. And it's worth millions and millions of pounds to the local economy for 20 odd years. This was 1993. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's 30, 30 years, years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, and thousands and thousands of jobs. So, great. And unfortunately, that was my first year, and I've done nothing since. <laughs> uh, so that's your, your proudest moment. Your biggest regret or your worst moment? Uh, I, I, I haven't enjoyed being away from my family, 
and that's even after 30 odd years you know when you marry someone because you're in love with them and then you say well I'll see, see you on Friday uh, so that's that's been a tough gig um, but we've got into a rhythm now and we're looking forward to retirement together hopefully you know there's been some very difficult decisions to make over the years I suppose I didn't enjoy being sacked uh, by Duncan Smith even though I knew it was coming you know and you I think I think it's true that to say and I'll put this to you in, in friendly phrasing that we've used throughout this interview I handled it like a man of God and I sulked for about two years <laughs> so that was a difficult time um, so did, did, did the sulking outlast Ian Duncan Smith as leader? Do you know he got a lot better when he, was, he, when he, when he, he? was removed? Isn't that funny? <laughs> and I don't care grudges, honestly. Yeah. And what, what about the biggest, the, the, the toughest decision you've had to make? Is that where your, your conscience has clashed up against party? I was about to resign as a PPS in the first parliament because we cut education spending. And John Major called all his ministers together and all his PPSs together that night. And I had, I had my resignation in my pocket. And... And he said, there's been something going down in Northern Ireland. Tomorrow's going to be a really tough day for us, so I want this all to be on the side. I just went out of the room, tore it up, put it in the bin, and thought, I can't do that now. And I didn't resign over it. Though I, I don't know if I made the right decision or not, but, you know, then my schools had less money. So I wasn't, that was, you know, there are difficult decisions. But then any teacher out there, any librarian, any, anyone, even journalists have to make difficult decisions, Matt. Yeah, we do. Often ours are the toughest, I always think. I think that too. You should be, pay- <laughs> you should be paid an awful lot more. Would you recommend this to someone else? I most certainly would. And the job has changed dramatically. For the better? I wouldn't say for the better, but that's because of my generation, I think. I'm bearing in mind when I was first elected, that no internet, no emails, no smartphones, no technology, no social media. Um, you know, newspapers, you, written, lovely. you turn the pages over, for <laughs> yeah. goodness sake. Is your, your son standing as well, isn't he? My son's standing uh, in a seat which we probably won't win. But he's very passionate about politics. I don't know where he's got that from, probably from his mother. And I, you know, but he, yeah, I can't stop him from doing it. Did you try? I, I just pushed it, pushed back slightly to say, you know, do you, are you really sure yeah. about this? Because it's a tough old gig. It's yeah. a tough gig. Yeah. But someone's got to do it. You can't have democracy without people being elected. Yeah. So last question then, Sir Gary Streeter. What will you do next? Well, I'll be 69 at the next election. I have five grandchildren living locally. I do quite a lot of preaching in local churches. I probably will find one thing to do to carry on sort of public service. But I'm going to retire, Matt. I'm going to retire, retire. Why wouldn't I? Well, uh, Gary Streeter, uh, we met a long, long time ago when I first joined the West Water News, and you were always uh, very kind and helpful then. So I wish you the very best in your retirement. So, Gary Streeter, thank you for joining us on your exit interview. Thank you, man. Today's episode. Don't forget you can catch up on previous editions of the exit interviews with Margaret Hodge and George Eustace right here on the podcast. I'm gonna have another one next week, but for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.